You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. This is episode 113 of Lighthearted, scheduled for April 11th, 2021. We'll be talking today about Souter Lighthouse, one of the most beautiful locations on the northeast coast of England. And later, we'll also be talking about Palmham Rocks Lighthouse back on this side of the Atlantic in East Providence, Rhode Island. Both Souter and Palmham Rocks are celebrating their 150th anniversaries this year. So joining me today as my co-host is Jeff Gales, Executive Director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Happy spring. Happy spring to you. I heard it's nice uh, in uh, New Hampshire at the moment. It is unbelievable. It's uh, about 70 and sunny. It's one of the, the nicest days we've had so far. And uh, I don't know why I'm in here sitting inside recording. I should be outside, but it's gorgeous. How is it in Washington State today? Well, spring has definitely sprung. We're seeing our first blooms. The weather's great. Rain has slowed down and uh, everybody's happy because the sun's coming out. The, somebody should write a song about that, like Here Comes the Sun or something something along yeah, those lines. That's a good idea. That's a really yeah. good idea. I'll work on it. Jeff, I'm wondering if you happen to know if anything interesting has happened uh, on this date in Lighthouse history. Well, as a matter of fact, on April 11th, 1854, Mary Reynolds was appointed keeper of the Biloxi Light in Mississippi. She was a widow and she was raising several children who uh, were orphans of relatives. Mary remained the official keeper of the darkened lighthouse through the Civil War and she was the first of three women keepers at Biloxi, and the station had female keepers longer than any lighthouse in the United States. Hmm. Also on the state, the American actor Joel Gray was born in Cleveland, Ohio, April 11th, 1932. He once said, quote, I never think about my age very much. I've always lived my life the same way, full of excitement and anticipation of wonderful things and the knowledge that some not so wonderful things come with it, unquote. So, Jeff, the subject of today's first interview is Souter Lighthouse in England. You and I visited there in the summer of 2017 during the U.S. Lighthouse Society's tour of England and Scotland. What do you remember most about visiting there? Well, you know, what always impresses me about the lighthouses in uh, Great Britain, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, is how meticulously they're maintained. Even after the primary role as, as a navigation aid is passed, the uh, lighthouses there, and Souter in particular, is just impeccably maintained. Did you get that feeling too? Absolutely, yeah. In this case, it's the National Trust uh, that, that takes care of it. And uh, that's talked about in the interview that's coming up here. But they do absolutely do a, a tremendous job. Nice little museum there too, with a beautiful first order lens on display, as I remember. Yeah, absolutely. They do a great job there. And uh, I mean, there's some lighthouses that need work still, but the National Trust really does their job with preserving England's and Great Britain's landmarks, that's for sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I think about the day we were there, I remember it was raining a little bit off and on, but it was still, you know, not not bad out. But I remember walking around the uh, perimeter of the, the lighthouse property with our f- mutual friend, Eleanor DeWire. Got some nice views of the lighthouse from the uh, the edge of the, the property. And But the thing I remember most is the foghorn the uh, diaphone horn at Souter, which uh, again will be talked about in our interview, but talk about uh, heavy bass. <laughs> Do you remember that? It kind of, uh, 
I remember uh, one kid of a lighthouse keeper saying that when his father would sound the foghorn, he felt like he was going to sink down into his shoes. That's that's <laughs> how I felt when I heard that horn. And yeah. uh, it's pretty impressive. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to surprise you with a, a sound here. Uh, just hang on here. Let me play this for you. See if this rings any bells or, or sounds any horns. Let's pacemaker stop. <laughs> My heart stopped. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that was our friend uh, Darlene Chisholm in the group. Yeah, somebody's pacemaker stopped apparently. <laughs> well, I don't I don't know. Hopefully not, but the second stopped. blast restarted it. No, okay, okay, there you go. That's, well, everything's well, okay then. You know, the, yep. the foghorns are uh, one part of lighthouse history that are always forgotten about. If you don't know about lighthouse history, uh, the foghorns played such an important role, almost as important as the light itself. And to actually be able to experience one and feel its power is awesome. I was just interviewing uh, somebody, an uh, uh, ex-Scottish uh, keeper with the uh, Sumbera Head Lighthouse, who's also a technician, and he just restored their old foghorn. That's another one that's uh, pretty impressive. So it's great that some of these things have been preserved. It's, it's You're right, it's as, as important as the lighthouses, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, I think that there's, uh, there's a few that are operational, have been restored. I know one for sure is in the San Francisco Bay uh, uh, at East Brother Island, and if you're lucky, you can go there or pass by it in a ship and hear them blow that old foghorn. It's really an amazing experience. Just the size of the trumpets that come out of the building themselves are awe-inspiring. So, Jeff, could you please uh, help me tell everyone about the Souter Lighthouse and our guest, uh, Kate Devlin? Sure, Jeremy. The Souter Lighthouse is on the northeast coast of England in South Shields, Tyne and Ware. The name Tyne and Ware refers to the fact that the mouths of the rivers Tyne and Ware are in the area. A lighthouse was much needed there because of dangerous reefs offshore, and in 1860 alone there were more than 20 shipwrecks. The original proposed site was Souter Point because Lizard Point, three miles south of the mouth of the River Tyne and about a mile north of Souter Point, had a higher cliff, the station was actually built on Lizard Point. But the Souter name was retained to avoid confusion with Lizard Lighthouse in Cornwall. The 77-foot tall brick tower was designed by James Douglas for Trinity House. And uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know that Douglas is famous for his design of the fourth lighthouse on the Eddystone Rocks, as well as several other wave-swept granite towers. Right. And Souter Lighthouse, also a Souter spelled S-O-U-T-E-R, Lighthouse went into operation on January 11th in 1871. It was one of the first lighthouses in the world to be built specifically to operate using AC electrical current. And the electricity was produced by two magneto generators, one of which is now on display at the Science Museum in London. And uh, an unusual lens system built by Chance Brothers consisted of a fixed third order lens surrounded by a revolving assembly of eight vertical prisms which produced one flash every minute. The 800,000 candle power light could be seen for 26 miles out to sea. Souter followed an opposite path from most lighthouses with a conversion from electricity to oil lamps, which is very strange, in 1914. At the same time, a new so-called biform first order lens was installed with one lens above the other 
1952, the lighthouse was converted back to electricity, but the clockwork mechanism that turned the lens had to be hand-wound until 1983. And that biform first-order lens is also very impressive. We got to see that up close and personal when we were there. That was another one of the, the best things about visiting that lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That was an amazing uh, display. The light station has had a variety of fog signals over the years. And as we talked about a few minutes ago, the present diaphone signal uh, goes back to the 1950s. It's kept in working order. It sounded often for visitors. In 2013, the fog signal played a role in a musical piece called Foghorn Requiem. The Souter Lighthouse was decommissioned in 1988. Today, the light station property is owned by the National Trust, which is an organization that promotes heritage, conservation in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. The lighthouse was opened to the public in 1990, and two former keepers' cottages offer overnight accommodations to the public. Uh, they're typically called in England self-catering accommodations. Which means you have to bring your own food, I believe. Is that right? Sometimes your own food, well, most of the time your own food, oftentimes your own linens and towels and things of that nature as well. The National Trust also owns South Foreland Lighthouse, built in 1832 to warn mariners of the treacherous Goodwin Sands, a 10-mile-long sandbank about six miles off the southeast English coast at Kent. The South Foreland Lighthouse is also open to the public. Kate Devlin, our guest today, is the National Trust Collections and House Officer at Souter Lighthouse. I had a chance to speak with her recently, so let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with Kate Devlin, speaking across the pond this morning through the magic of Zoom. And uh, Kate is the National Trust Collections and House Officer at Souter Lighthouse. Thank you so much for being with me today, Kate. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Before we get into discussing the Lighthouse and the National Trust, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about you. What exactly brought you to Souter Lighthouse and the National Trust? Slightly convoluted. I'm a sort of preventive conservator by training. So museums and heritage sector is, is kind of my field. I started working for the National Trust as an organization about, oh, I think it's about six-ish years ago, um, but I was at a different property. So when I came over to Suto and I got the job, really what attracted me, I mean, obviously working in a lighthouse is amazing. So on the surface of it, it looked exciting anyway, but the collection at the lighthouse is really varied. We still have working machinery. So the chance to work with such a varied collection and such an interesting collection was really what, what drew me to working at the lighthouse. Now, of course, most of our listeners to this podcast are in the United States and uh, we have, we do get some listeners in the UK, but for everybody in the US and in other countries outside the UK, can you explain a little bit uh, some of the basics of what the National Trust exactly is and does? The National Trust, it's the biggest conservation charity in Europe. So it, I mean, it's been going for 125 years as of last year. So, it, I mean, it's it's old and it's big. Uh, we look after about 500 places. So that is anything from kind of coastal areas, parkland, woodland to castles, lighthouses, manor houses. So it's such a varied organisation to work for. It's kind of real core purposes that it wants to preserve and keep access to these places of natural beauty and sort of heritage for for everybody. So it's kind of, it, it's a charity, but it, it's working to keep those things uh, well looked after for eternity, I guess. 
a few minutes ago before we started, I was talking to my wife, mentioning to her what uh, I was doing this morning, that I was interviewing you and mentioned the National Trust. And she said, isn't that mentioned in a Beatles song? And I couldn't remember what Beatles song it is. So I Googled it and it was happiness is a warm gun. There's something about to donating something to the National Trust. <laughs> I didn't and, know about this. Good. <laughs> yeah. But I also saw when I looked that up that among the National Trust properties are the childhood homes of both John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I haven't was, visited, actually. I'd love to go. Yeah. Oh, me too. I hope I can get there someday. So uh, your title is Collections and House Officer for Souter Lighthouse. And what does that mean exactly? Um, so my my responsibilities really are the caring of the collection so that the museum collection within the lighthouse um, and also the, sort of the interior of the lighthouse. So that's anything from looking after the machinery, making sure that the environment is appropriate. So we're storing things at the right humidity. We're monitoring for bugs, making sure that nothing's kind of nibbling on our collections. Mm. So it's quite it's quite varied, but it, I mean it's it's brilliant. It's a brilliant place to do that in. Oh yeah. So if we could talk for a few minutes about the history of Souter Lighthouse, why was the lighthouse needed there in the first place? The stretch of coastline naturally has some hazard. Um, there are some submerged rocks and there's a reef. So it has some, I guess, natural issues. But really, the, the lighthouse was kind of built at the, the kind of hub of the Industrial Revolution. Newcastle upon Tyne and Sunderland, which the lighthouse sits between these two major seaports, really bustling with industry. Coal mining is really big in the area. So coal was being taken out by shipping channels further south, um, a lot of industry shipbuilding. So there, there was a lot of traffic on the water. With all of that industry comes a lot of smoke. So smog was a big issue as well. There was one year they lost 20 ships. I always thought the romantic idea of lighthouses were that they were there to save people's lives. And I mean, I guess that there is that function, but really the financial loss of losing all of that cargo and losing the ships was really, you know, it was, it was make, it was obviously had a toll and a lot of businessmen were sort of clamoring for something to be done about it. Yeah. The, the uh, economic uh, issues, uh, I think were the, the first reason for lighthouses, but saving <laughs> lives was a, you know, I think a happy byproduct. Oh yeah, of that. Oh, yeah definitely. <laughs> yeah. One of the most uh, interesting things about uh, Souter Lighthouse was that it was the first, well, I've read in some places was the first lighthouse in the world to be powered by AC electric current, but then I read uh, in other places that that's not quite true, but maybe you'd like to say a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, this is a title that we are really, really sad to have to give up. Um, it's actually something that's only just come to light recently. We thought that Suter Point Lighthouse was the first purpose-built electric station. Uh, it turns out that it seemingly was the third there were two others already in existence. So Port Said, I think I'm pronouncing that right, in Egypt. In Egypt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Odessa in the Ukraine. So they seem to have beaten Suter to the title. So, I mean, it's certainly the first in the UK, and it was certainly the first for Trinity House, um, the organization for lighthouses in England. But we don't have the we don't have the big record. <laughs> to be honest, I think our website even still says that. So I think, you know, we've only just learned this information, so we're going to have to do some, like, rebranding a little bit. But, you know, it's still it's still pretty still pretty good um, oh yeah we'll, we'll take the third that, that that's okay being one of the first is still yeah, one still of the first <laughs> very important yeah besides the uh the whole thing about being one of the first lighthouses to operate on ac electric power what are some of the other significant parts of the history of the lighthouse there as far as you're concerned 
There were a couple of other firsts. The use of the um, what we call the wasted light from the from the optic. So the light was redirected down a series of prisms into a lower room and redirected out of that window. So it provided like a secondary light. And that light was divided into a red sector and a white sector. If you were in, if you could see the red light, you were heading for the rocks. If you could see the white light, you had safe passage. So that was that was definitely a first for for Suta. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I, th- I think the the fact that it was a purpose built electric station uh, up until that point in Trinity House had been experimenting. They've been using other lighthouses to experiment with that technology. So they they'd gotten to a such a good point that they were confident enough to build a a brand new station just based on that technology so it's um it was pretty important for them yeah that uh that secondary light uh, at the lower level is very unusual thing when i saw that i was just just uh, amazed i've never Mm. seen i don't think anything like that exists anywhere else yeah i haven't heard of any others i guess it, it the orientation of the lighthouse just worked really well to to send that light out for the for that specific reef and what about the human history of the, the light station there? Is there anything particular about the keepers and families that live there? That, for me, is certainly the thing that really gets me really excited about the history of the lighthouse. And it's actually something that is it's harder to find because I guess the, the records in the archives were really about how the lighthouse operated. The people weren't kind of central to that documentation. So it when we get those little snippets of information about past keepers and past keepers families, it's just fantastic. Um, There there is a fantastic story. So I think uh, he must've been quite a young keeper called Robert Darling. And he, um, he fell asleep on duty and the light went out. So Mm -hmm. this, as far as I understand, was pretty much an instant dismissal sort of scenario, but the inspector stood up for him he he kind of put a good word in he didn't lose his job but he lost his electric station bonus which were the suit light keepers would get a little little bonus on their salary because it was considered a more sort of important technical station to work at so he lost he lost a bit of money but he kept hmm. his job he became principal keeper for suta so he he stayed there for the rest of his career so he did very well because i think others were fired Robert Darling was uh, related to the famous Grace Darling, right? Yes, he was. So he was her nephew. I do wonder if that had something to do with it, you know, a big light keeper, like family and the nephew of the famous Grace Darling. So I do wonder if that um, had an impact. Well, it might have been bad publicity for Trinity House to fire a relation of one of the most famous women in the world. So is there anything else about the human history that's interesting? Well, I think something that we are trying to kind of bring out more, it, we've, we've recently done an oral history project, predominantly about the, the village that was no longer, uh, no longer is there, but it was next to the lighthouse. And that oral history project has brought out sort of anecdotal stories of the lighthouse. And we actually got a lighthouse keeper's wife part of the project as well. So we, we have some really lovely stories that we are trying to sort of bring to life in the lighthouse at the mm-hmm. moment. So that's been fantastic. Another really interesting thing about that lighthouse is the lens, or I don't know if I should say lens or, or lenses, but we have nothing remotely like that in the U.S. Can you tell me about the lens? Yeah, of course. So um, it is the it's the second lens that went in. It was put in in 1915. Prior to that, had been a third order lens. So the the current optic that it's in the lighthouse is a first order. So it's the I guess the biggest, and it has the longer furthest distance of, to shine its light. 
the octet it's, it's a biform so there are actually two lights and it has a red color a uh, red filter inside. I think that something actually to mention, the, the first optic, it was another first, I believe, that the optic was the expanded to the diameter of the entire turntable, which meant that the light keepers could get inside while it was moving, while it was working, mm. and do any sort of, I guess, emergency maintenance to the light while it was operating. So that was continued into the second uh, optic so you can climb inside it there are there are two little uh, ladders inside sort of cast iron kind of gangway around the light and you um, it's very cramped I'm, I'm only five foot two and it that's uh, pretty cramped for me so um yeah it's uh, it would not be uncomfortable and it makes if if it's moving it makes you feel incredibly sick so i don't envy them that task i assume it was really just for emergencies but um it's i mean it's it's massive it's four and a half tons it sits on a bed of one and a half tons of mercury in the trough. It's, it's massive. It sure is. It was uh, extremely impressive. And all of us on the tour with the U.S. Lighthouse Society were just kind of blown away by that lens. <laughs> and I, I took some video of it that I, I think I'll, I'll post a little clip uh, yeah. when I post this pod episode of the podcast on the Lighthouse Society news blog. Jumping ahead to present day, the 150th anniversary so Suter's first lighting was uh, just, uh, we're, we're speaking in, uh, what's today, February 9th. So about a month ago, January 8th, was the actual 150th anniversary of the first lighting. Was, am I correct when I say that? Is that right? Yes. Uh, it was actually the 11th, January the 11th. Oh, okay. A couple of days out, but yes, 150 uh, years. Was there a special event to observe the anniversary? Uh, unfortunately, not this year. It fell foul of the pandemic and we, we were hoping to do something uh, we knew we would still be in a form of national lockdown, but we didn't know, you know, we were hoping that we might be able to do some sort of celebration, even if it was just showing the light and sort of posting on social media and trying to get people engaged. But because our, our national restrictions increased come January, it wasn't worth it. We didn't want to put anybody at risk. We're calling it our 150th birthday year. And we are hoping that later in the year when we are able to open and we're able to do something safely, we can we can do a celebration and make up for it. I sure hope so. Of course, the uh, <laughs> pandemic has uh, ruined a lot of things on uh, in both yes. both our countries. Through uh, things like Zoom and Skype, we're able to still do some things, but it's not the same as uh, visiting in, in person, mm -hmm. of course. Let me ask you, you uh, before you said Suter Point, Lighthouse. What, which is the correct way to refer to it? Suter <laughs> yeah, Lighthouse or Suter Point Lighthouse? It's very confusing. So both are technically right. I actually only learned this today because we've used them interchangeably as sort of a staff and volunteer base. But it was originally Suter Point Lighthouse and it later officially became Suter Lighthouse. So they dropped the point for whatever reason. Ah, so okay. I think, you know, you see in records and things, it, it's kind of interchanged. It obviously depends. I don't know when it was that they dropped the point. So we, we tend to use a bit of both. Okay, that, <laughs> that explains that. In a normal year, not currently and not for a while now, but in a normal year, what can people expect when they visit Suter Lighthouse? You really see most of the core aspects of, of the lighthouse. So you visit the engine room. We've got some interpretation spaces, which hopefully sort of brings some of those sort of hidden stories to life. We have a lightkeeper's cottage, which at the moment is displayed as a sort of Victorian cottage to give you a sense of the, the sort of 19th century station. Um, and then you can also go up the lighthouse and see the optic and see the view from the top. If you come on a, on a specific day, watch the website if you do visit you can also hear the foghorn being sounded 
so we can demonstrate we demonstrate that but approximately once a week yeah oh, that fog signal diaphone foghorn is talk about impressive <laughs> <laughs> i've i've never heard i've heard uh, a distant diaphone horn before but not not as close as i was <laughs> to this. and all of us on this u.s lighthouse society tour were grouped in that grassy area you know between the lighthouse and, and horn right and it goes right through you <laughs> right? Yeah, and through, down, <laughs> through your head and down through your feet and it, it, it's 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 incredible. Bone rattling is a really yeah. good way to put it. <laughs> and as you mentioned, it is blasted occasionally for visitors. Did you say it's a regular schedule for that? or is Yeah, it just- so we, we normally, it's uh, one of our volunteers operates it for us and demonstrates it. Best checking the website, it would tend to be a regular day, so say a Sunday, but that could change depending on what that volunteer would like to do for the next season. So it's always best to check the website. And if there isn't any information on there, there are, you know, phone number and email address. So just get in touch with Mm -hmm. with the staff and we'll tell you when it's next due to be sounded. Well, it was incredible. And there's a lot of good reasons to visit that light station. And also, I got to say, I was so impressed by the uh, condition of the buildings. We had time to walk around the grounds. I kind of walked around the perimeter for different views of the lighthouse. And it was just a really pleasant place to visit. It's a lovely area. And the National Trust also manages a three mile stretch of coastline, which run runs either side of the lighthouse. So that if it, you know, for nature and lovers of the outside it's lovely the views are incredible and it's real cliff top stretch and that's looked after by some of our ranger staff um, based at the lighthouse so if you get a good day or even to get a you know windy day it feels quite wild and uh, pretty uh, special anyway but it's also worth a nice little stroll and a, and a walk and we have a cafe so you can warm yourself up afterwards with a cup of tea that's always good. The day we were there, I think the weather was mostly good, but I think we got a sprinkle around the time we heard the the foghorn. But uh, <laughs> yeah. also, uh, one more thing, speaking of the foghorn, I was uh, reading in a, in a few articles online that the horn actually played a role in a musical piece. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so this, I mean, this is before my time, so I only have secondhand information to pass on. Um, it was in 2013, I believe. Um, and it was it was kind of an it was an art piece and the National Trust joined forces with the local district council, South Shields Council, to fund this art installation, I guess. Um, and there was a band, uh, they, they composed a piece of music specifically for this and it was performed by a brass band on the cliff top and ships gathered out at sea and had musical parts within the composition. So they played their foghorns in time with the music and then the um the piece ended with a blast from Suta's horn which i think <laughs> made all the children cry <laughs> by all <laughs> accounts um so it's quite loud um so apparently it was it was really it was fantastic it was a great thing to be part of yeah oh i'm sure it was so uh i believe you have volunteers on the site there and if so can you tell me a little bit about what volunteers do there yeah so i mean our volunteers are really crucial to Suter and, and you know a visitor experience at Suter um, we have lots of different roles so you, you know volunteers get involved in the range of work outside uh, in the gardens and inside as a visitor you'll be probably most impacted by our visitor experience volunteers who are there to sort of engage you with the collections and with the history of the lighthouse that that incredibly knowledgeable and we also have a team who work on kind of my behind the scenes area 
um, some are ex engineering types who help look after and maintain the machinery um, and also uh, sort of collections care conservation side of things as well so we have a lot of volunteers in there I mean they're, they're fantastic they, they help us keep suit of the, the you know amazing place it is really yeah well again I was I was impressed by how how well everything was run and how beautifully everything was kept there so the National Trust also owns the South Foreland Lighthouse in uh, Kent on the southeast coast of England. I'd like to just talk briefly about South Foreland Lighthouse. What are some of the things that make that one significant? It's probably the most quintessentially English lighthouse view I think you could possibly find. It sits on top of the White Cliffs of Dover. You can, looking over the English Channel, you can see France from the lighthouse on a, on a good day. The place itself is incredible. Um, and the lighthouse, the, the history of the lighthouse is really, it's quite significant actually in, in lighthouse development in general. It's where um, Michael Faraday and Frederick Holmes were experimenting with the arc lamp. So with electric lighting, electric light was installed at South Foreland. And I believe the first ever electric light for a lighthouse was shone from South Foreland. So it's the first one in the world. Wow. They definitely okay. still have that title. <laughs> okay, well, let's hope they... <laughs> so they obviously spent some time developing it, but they, yeah. you know, it was the first place. Um, and it was also the first place that Marconi was developing his radio. So South Fulham was the site for the first ship to shore broadcast mm-hmm. and the first international radio broadcast as well. So wow. it, it was kind of, it was used by Trinity House as this real experimental site. Um, and they did a lot of experimenting with, I think that later on they did experiments with types of light. So they, they experimented with brightness and different types of technology, I guess. Is South Foreland Lighthouse open to visitors? On a normal year, yes. <laughs> Obviously at the moment it isn't, but the landscape itself is really beautiful. So the National Trust manager section of that coastline. So there's lovely walks. Um, for nature lovers again and the lighthouse you can visit inside they have a cafe and you can go up the lighthouse um, and look at the view um, and they have some fantastic volunteers there who like like suitors volunteers really you know help you understand and engage with that history so it's definitely worth a visit well, i haven't been to that part of england i'd really like to to get oh, there Hope yeah make it back yeah i went a couple of years ago and it, it was i was really impressed it's really mm-hmm. lovely yeah, sounds sounds like it. I have two final questions related to Suter Lighthouse. Uh, it's kind of a general question here. What do you think Suter Lighthouse means to the local area and to England as a whole? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think to local people, it's a real landmark. It's a landmark that represents our shields and it's really iconic visually. The coastal landscape that the National Trust manages surrounding the lighthouse has been really important to people being able to give them access to the outdoors and to connect with nature and in this really strange year that we've had we've seen so many people using the site obviously they can't come inside the lighthouse but they're they're around it they're using the cafe still and the grounds to to be able to get out and about and I think probably to England as a whole I think really suitors has its place in in that development of electricity and that kind of really exciting scientific innovation of the industrial revolution and I think I, I, probably another thing that I do think about, I guess, this is lighthouses in general. They're such a big part of our heritage landscape in this country. I mean, I'm sure that's the case for many other countries, but we are a tiny island. You know, wherever you go, you see lighthouses. There were so many of them in the past. They kind of represent that that sort of trade and, and sort of shipping and outward looking part of our nation. 
they're quite special. Beautifully said. So I have one final question for you for bonus points. What is your favorite thing about your involvement with Suter Lighthouse? Such a hard question. (laughs) I think, I mean, aside from how much I love my job, I think the the best thing about working at Suter is the passion of the staff and the volunteers and the local people for the lighthouse. I was completely blown away by that when I first started at Suter and I'm, I'm constantly, you know, gobsmacked by it. It's just, it's such a, a wonderful place to work and people are so passionate. So I think that's, I mean, aside from how much I love my, you know, what I physically do, that's just, that's the best thing. Well, you do a, a wonderful job, you and everybody else involved with that place. And I'm sure with uh, the National Trust does a great job with South Foreland Lighthouse as well. But I want to thank you for the wonderful visit I had there. You know, something I'll always remember, one of my my nicer lighthouse visits. Oh, Hope good. to get back sometime. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you've got a beautiful place to, to work there. So uh, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. And maybe we can talk again sometime. Hope to get over there again sometime. And if you ever ever find yourself on, on this side of the pond, let me know and I can get get you to a couple of lighthouses over here too. Oh, that'd be, that'd be brilliant. I need to expand my international horizons in, in lighthouses. So that would be fantastic. Well, Kate Devlin, thank you so much. Thank you. So we are coming back to the U.S. now to talk uh, a bit about the Palmham Rocks Lighthouse in East Providence, Rhode Island. And let me just say, Palmham is kind of the traditional pronunciation. It's named for an Indian uh, sachem there. But uh, a lot of people say Palmham, and I, I would say that they're both probably equally correct, Palmham or Palmham. Anyway, it's in uh, East Providence, in the Providence River, and the lighthouse there is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year was first lighted on December 1st, 1871. Right. The lighthouse was discontinued in 1974 and was replaced by an automatic light on a skeleton tower. So sad. The property was owned by ExxonMobil for many years, and they leased the property to the American Lighthouse Foundation in 2005. And since 2010, it's been owned by the foundation. Uh, the Friends of Palmham Rocks Lighthouse, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation, works for the preservation of the historic light. Yeah, and by the way, you know, you probably know there was a happy uh, ending to that story. The light was removed from the lighthouse, but some years later it was put back in the lighthouse, thanks to the Friends and the American Lighthouse Foundation. So it is a, a working aid to navigation again. Yeah, I, the Friends of Palmham Rocks have done an amazing job with that lighthouse. It, it is absolutely beautiful. It's one of the prettiest lighthouses around. Uh, Dennis Tardif, who was one of the last Coast Guard keepers at Palmham Rocks, is now the president of the Friends Group. He was interviewed uh, for this podcast in episode 70. The Friends of Palmham Rocks Lighthouse have completed extensive restoration of the exterior and, uh, more recently, the interior of the lighthouse uh, in the past 15 years. And they have a variety of events planned this year for the 150th anniversary. I recently spoke with volunteer Judy Ann Point about the group's plans. So let's listen to my conversation with Judy Ann now. I'm speaking today with Judy Ann Point, who is a volunteer for the Friends of Palmham Rocks Lighthouse in Rhode Island. Thank you so much for joining me today, Judy Ann. It is such a pleasure to be here, Jeremy. I think my husband and I have heard every single one of your podcasts, so it's great to be a part of one. 
Oh, that's so nice to hear. And you were actually in a, an episode of the podcast quite a while ago, uh, talking about volunteering. So it's right, nice to- right. This is a step above, and I'm loving it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again. Over the years, I've heard the name of the island and lighthouse pronounced two different ways: Palmham or Palmham. So, where do you come down on that controversy? Well, my answer is probably going to be controversial for the natives uh, in Riverside, where our lighthouse is located. But I'm not a native Rhode Islander. I'm from Braintree, Massachusetts. Mm. And when I moved, I'm a retired teacher. So when I moved to Rhode Island and I started teaching at Barrington High School, which is a town right next to East Providence, students would make fun of my accent if I said the number four zero. Of course, they would say 40 and I'd say 40. And I say Uh to this day. So growing up on the South Shore, I had towns surrounding me like Hingham and Dedham. I didn't say Hingham and Dedham. Right. So naturally, when I saw how this lighthouse was written, I defaulted to Palmham. Sure. So I say Palmham. People in Riverside say Palmham. But I believe you can say either or yeah. either. Yeah. Both <laughs> That's pretty much how I... Uh look at it these days. I interviewed Dennis Tardiff, the president of your organization yes, some time yes. ago for the for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And he he's went more for Palmham, but you know, I probably hear Palmham more often. I think either is correct. You mentioned Massachusetts. Interestingly on Cape Cod, you've got Chatham, but you also have East Ham and people exactly. there do pronounce it East Ham. Exactly. So, yeah, it's it's crazy, you know. Yeah. Moving on here. So people are going to be hearing this on April 11th. We're speaking a little bit before that on April 2nd. And uh, I understand you just had a photography and art contest. It just ended. What can you tell me about that? Well, I could give you a few details because I I know one of the reasons that um, I listen, my husband, I listen to your podcast is to get ideas for our lighthouse. So hopefully some of the things I say today will give other people some ideas as well. The person from our board that put this Um, art and photo contest together was Louise Paiva and she told me there were 48 entries thought there you go 48 entries from Mm -hmm. 29 different people for the photo contest and these are entries from amateur and professional photographers Uh, there's views from like every angle from the bike path because East Bay bike path runs right along you get great views of lighthouse from there there are views from the Providence River there's drone views Distance, close-ups, sunsets, moonlight, you name it, we, we got quite a few entries for that. Then there were nine entries from seven different people in the visual arts. There were pastels, watercolors, acrylic, and gouache. I never knew what gouache was, but I, I looked it up so I'd sound smart for this podcast. It's actually an opaque type of watercolor. And they, they're all different depictions of the lighthouse. So I'm going to be one of the judges. I'm really excited about that. We've got five judges that are going to be looking at them. Um, one is a professional photographer. Another one is a professional illustrator who also happens to be one of our board members, Anne Green. And she's actually a medical illustrator professionally. She designed our logo for the 150th. And she also designed the passport stamp, the brand new passport stamp, the USLHS. So anyone out there who is collecting these, you got to get a copy of Anne's. Um, We have a retired public relations and marketing professional. That is Louise, who's also on our board. She's just been amazing with sponsorship and just putting the word out there for us. Uh, Another board member, our Facebook page editor, Carlene Joyner. Uh, She's also with the East Province Chamber of Commerce to keep us uh, up to date. And then the chair of the 150th committee is also on that um, 
committee, and yes, that's me. Um, so we're going to be looking at all of this artwork, and we're evaluating it on creativity, the visual impact, technical excellence, and as well as how we can use it, for instance, on, on our merchandise. First place winners will get a one-year family membership in the Friends of Palmer Rocks Lighthouse, and honorable mention will get a boat trip and a tour of the lighthouse. So the entries are going to be displayed in our gift shop, which we're making, turning the original oil room into our little gift shop there. And there'll be a special 150th anniversary display at East Providence City Hall. Uh, there'll be a selection of photos. The selection of photos submitted are also going to go into a 2022 calendar for the Friends of Palmer Rocks Lighthouse. And we'll put it on merchandise such as postcards, note cards, and things like that to go into the gift shop. So we're really trying to get a lot of mileage out of this contest. And that's why we're excited that, you know, it generated the enthusiasm that it did. Yeah. Well, that's great. That sounds like it was all really, really thought out. And uh, Louise like is you, very thorough, uh, for sure. That's great. Congratulations on, uh, on doing that. Sounds like yeah. it was a big success. And there's also a, a lighthouse run coming up later this month. So what's that all about? Okay, that's going to be on April 24th, and I am the race director. I've never done this before in my life, so it's a lot of work, but I'm having a lot of fun. We were wondering back in August when we started planning the 150th celebrations, you know, what are we going to do? Our main focus was community awareness. How are we going to get people to know about us? Because there are people in these provinces who may have never even seen Palmer Rocks because it's really tough to see from the shore unless you live right there or if you're on the water or if you live on the West Bay. Um, you have a great view from the bike path, but if you're not there, you don't know about it. So we wanted community awareness. We also wanted to have something, you know, to kick it off where it would attract a younger crowd, you know, get some younger members in there. As you know, one of uh, vice chairman of our board, Alex Dias, I mean, he's in his 20s, which is great. Um, he's actually running in the race. And his brother, Adam's a couple years younger. He's our newsletter person. We want to get more people, 20s, 30s, 40s, who can join, become members, and also stick with us, you know, mm -hmm. to carry this tradition on. Um, so we were trying to think, you know, what, what can we do? We have the bike path right there. Could we do a bike race? Could we do a running race? So someone put me in touch with road races and events, and that's our H-O-D-E, and the two women that run that are Susan Rancourt and Karen Zions. I'm in touch with them practically every day. They are fantastic. They're leading me through this entire process, and with their help, we're hosting a 5K run and walk, a 10K run, and we're also doing a virtual 5K and a virtual 10K, and I'm not sure if people are aware. I had no clue what a virtual run was before, but in a nutshell, if you want to do virtual, you can actually run our course. It can't be the day of the race, but starting yesterday, you can run the course. You can run um, a 5K or a 10K wherever you may be living. And we do have people from across the country that have signed up to do it. Mm -hmm. You just submit your time. You'll get a T-shirt, but you, you, know, you can't get any prizes. Uh, you could even run it on your treadmill if you wanted to, if you want to get some mm -hmm. exercise. So we have those options. And then there's a big fat donate button there, too, on our website. So if you want mm -hmm. to just, you know, donate to the cause, you can you can do that. These women run. Uh, they're very dedicated to a safe race. It's and, you know, it's not just the physical benefits, but I think also the mental benefits as well. I think everyone needs, you know, to get out there and do something to combat a lot of the depression and the isolation that this whole thing is has caused. So. 
I really am excited about this. I'm very upbeat about it. You know, pardon the pun, but it could be a beacon of recovery, you know, for people who are suffering through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I know there are other lighthouses and I did my research to see other people that had runs. And I thought this would be a really good fit for us. And we're hoping to get a lot of people. We'll see what happens. Oh, it's great. Uh, another thing that seems uh, sounds extremely well thought out, and I'm sure it's going to be a big <laughs> success. And I agree with you that it's uh, important for people to to get out, whether it's walking or running or whatever, uh, to get outside, enjoy some fresh air, especially since we're getting into spring here in New England, and it's, it's really beautiful out. Yeah. So I was reading, there's uh, some things happening to honor uh, Palmum Light's uh, Keepers of the Past. Can you yes. tell me about that? Absolutely. Um, Another one of our board members, David Kelleher, he's also our historian. He is putting together this grave marker ceremony and he ordered the bronze marker through Lighthouse Digest. Um, I love reading the articles in there. You know, they talk about these different ceremonies. The idea is to eventually honor every one of the lighthouse keepers, maybe do one a year. But of course, we'll we'll start with the first one, C.H. Salisbury, Charles H. Salisbury, and as well as his wife, Mary. Um, the graves are in Warren, Rhode Island, which is just a couple towns over from East Providence. And we're trying to track down the descendants. We'd love to have some there, which would be wonderful. We're not sure if we can find any, but if anyone listening to this podcast is related to C.H. Salisbury or his wife, that would be great. Mm-hmm. And I found something really interesting. I just found out this uh, recently. The situation where their graves are. I know, and I know you know this because you're well aware of the history. Uh, Mary Salisbury wanted to be an assistant. She applied to be an assistant keeper, I think in 1872, when she, she was granted that. She was appointed, but then it was revoked just a month later. So she was not paid as an assistant keeper, even though she probably did just as much work. But the, when you go to the cemetery, Charles Salisbury is buried next to his first wife, Rebecca. And then poor Mary is like five feet off to the right, buried with her family. So, you know, I I just thought that was kind of interesting, you know, poor Mary, you know, on on the outside once again. But it would be great to get some family members to find out a little bit of the history of the, you know, the situation there. Yeah, it sounds like there's a story behind the story. There's a story behind that. I'd I'd love to put it into the tours. I really would. Uh, But, you know, we'll try to have it will be a small ceremony. Um, Dave's doing a great job putting it together. You know, hopefully we'll have, you know, the mayor of, of East Province maybe could come, Bob De Silva, get the town manager, Warren, maybe someone from the Coast Guard. And, and also uh, Captain Salisbury was in the Civil War and there's already a plaque there for that. So maybe we can get a veteran there as well. So we're looking forward to that. Be a good yeah. ceremony. Well, I've known Dave Kelleher for a long time. I know oh, yes. He works oh, yes. hard and he's very, very knowledgeable. Oh, yes. Uh, I know something special is happening in August to commemorate the anniversary. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, um, that will be on August 8th. We were hoping maybe to have it on the 7th because isn't that National Lighthouse Day? Yes, yes. it is. Yeah. But the place where the venue, it's the Squanum Clubs, uh, which is right in East Province. It's a beautiful private club there. They weren't available. So on August 8th, we want to have a few things. Now, this is still in the planning stages. The committee's working on it. We'd love to have a christening of our new boat because last year we purchased a new boat from Crosby Yacht Yard on the Cape. That would be, you know, a real main feature of it. But the purpose of this is to invite the public in. It's another public awareness event. And we plan to have lectures, you know, membership info, lawn games, food, music. 
Um, we'd love to have boat trips to the island. We're just not sure because of regulations. There are still some restrictions. So again, that's all in the planning stages. But this is this is for the public. We've done so many things through the years for membership. This this is for the public. Oh, that sounds sounds really great. And uh, I hope you're able to to do at least uh, some of your your plans at that time, if not the boat rides. But we'll see. Hopefully, you get to do that too. We've talked about a few things that are all uh, really exciting, but is anything else happening for the anniversary? We're hoping, we'd, again, this, this part's under construction. Um, we'd like to do something on December 1st, because that is the actual anniversary of the first lighting. It was December 1st, 1871, mm-hmm. and I believe at that time it was a fixed white, but we now have a fixed red light. So we're thinking, you know, maybe some type of a ceremonial, you know, lighting ceremony, that that's we're we're working on that one right there. Sure, and, sure. And we'll see how many people we can have. We're looking, searching for a venue. Do we want to have it membership? Do we? Have, we'd love to have it public. Again, you know the regulations and everything. We, we're waiting and seeing on that. Any possibility that might be an online event, so you could have more a, again. That could be a possibility, Jeremy. That could very well be a possibility that we could broadcast it. Yes, thank yeah, you for yeah. reminding me of that. Well, sure, but whatever happens, it'd be good to do something. Uh, we don't want to miss that opportunity. Yeah, uh, and you mentioned uh, boat tours to the island uh, yeah. a minute ago. What what is the latest in general about public tours to the lighthouse? In 2019, we had membership tours. We had a smaller boat, and we we just brought members out. Last year, I did some research and I found a lot of lighthouses use an online booking service called Fair Harbor. And I, they are just wonderful. We were all set to go last year to use them. <laughs> it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. This year, we hopefully can start up again and using Fair Harbor. Right now, we, the new boat that we have, the Lady Palm 2, it has a capacity of 19 people, but 17 of which would be passengers because you need two crew members right now with the regulations i believe it's 10 people and then eight people eight passengers so you know we have to see if it's financially feasible you know to run tours hopefully it will be but again another board member uh, mike Tripp, our treasurer and cpa he uh, would help us to determine that so you know we're hoping we can do something it's frustrating because the lighthouse looks beautiful and, you know, we want more than anything to show people what every all the work that's been done. Yeah. Why it's worth being a member and why it's worth donating. So that's another one of those, you know, stay tuned. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful lighthouse. And, you know, I haven't been actually on the island for quite a few years myself, so I haven't seen all the restoration that's been done. So I need to oh, get back you, there. It, yeah, you have to. It's gorgeous. Yeah. So how can people learn more about the, the events that are happening this year? Best place to go would be to go to our website, and that is Palm, I should say Palm Ham, it's easy to spell that way, P-O-M-H-A-M, yeah. Palm Ham Rocks, with an S, lighthouse.org, palmandrockslighthouse.org, and you can go there, and um, you, if you want to you know, join the race, for instance, there is an icon right there that you can click on, and, and all the information that you need is right there. Mm-hmm. You have a Facebook page too, right? And we have a Facebook. Yes, of course. How could I forget that? Sorry, yeah. Colleen. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm sure the information is in both places. Yes, it is. Right. But no, that's important too. So I have one final question for you. And I know you're a regular listen to, listener to the podcast. So I, I usually ask some question like this uh, at the end of an interview. And I always say this for bonus points. I'm sure. Oh, I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's going to go on your permanent record. So be careful <laughs> with your answer here. So my last question is, what is your favorite thing about volunteering for the Friends of Palm and Rocks Lighthouse? Okay, if you'll indulge me, can I give you three reasons? Absolutely. All right. Reason number one. Okay. Access to the lighthouse. Because we are under some restrictions because ExxonMobil did donate. The, the terminal is right next door for people who don't realize it. There is, this is a working port of Providence, you know. Um, so there is an Exxon um, terminal right next door in East Providence. Every time the captain goes out on our boat, we have to let them know we're coming. So people can't just go there on private boats. You have to go on our boat. So, yeah, it's just being able to get there. And when my husband was little, my husband Gary was little, his dentist had a house right across, you know, with a beautiful view of the lighthouse. And he would sit there in the chair and look out and say, someday I want to get inside of that lighthouse. Then years later, you know, we would be riding our bikes on the bike path. And we'd look out and say, man, I'd love to get inside of that lighthouse. So in 2018, my husband happened to pick up a local newspaper, the East Providence Post, at a grocery store. We don't get it because we live in Barrington. And he said, you know, I haven't read this in years. Picked it up, and lo and behold, what's there? This little article talking about the celebration on the rocks, which took place in June of 2018. It was was a ribbon-cutting ceremony. It was commemorating the completion of the interior restoration. Uh, and we decided we're going to go. There was a dinner, and we could become members. So we became members. Uh, we immediately became involved. Gary became a first mate. Um, we did work parties. Eventually, I be- I got on the board, and we got to the lighthouse quite a bit, and it was so exciting to actually be in there. That's why we want to get the public out there. It's such a beautiful place. So, yeah, reason number one was, you know, we want to get inside of that thing. Mm-hmm. So here we are. I mean, the second people really... Uh, the second reason, excuse me, are the people. Um, I love working with them. I love working with the board. And I would be remiss because I've been sprinkling names of board members throughout. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of others. Of course, Nate Chase, who's been there from the beginning. He's a, a lawyer. He is indispensable. And last but not least, our chairperson, Dennis Tardiff, who, of course, was the last uh, lighthouse keeper there. He was a coast guardsman there from 71 to 74. I can't name all the members. We've got about 250 of them now, and it's growing. So that has been another big push that we've had, and, and it's been working. And the third reason, I love it when people ask me that haven't seen me uh, in a while, and they'll say, hey, what are you guys up to in retirement? And when I say that I'm volunteering for a lighthouse, it's always, oh, my God, that's so cool. Wow, mm-hmm. you're lucky. You know, it's, it's always a great reaction, and that's kind of fun, you know, to hear people say that. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it, it really, we're having a blast. We really are. Well, it is cool, and you are lucky. And the, the <laughs> Lighthouse is lucky to have you and the other volunteers of the Friends of Palm and Rocks Lighthouse who are caring about it so much and doing such a great job. And it's very exciting. The things that are happening have been happening, will continue happening throughout this uh, 150th anniversary year. So I look forward to hearing more about them. Uh, and if I don't make it down for any of the the uh, the events this this year, I, I've got to get down there by next year, let's say, because I need to see all that that incredible work that's been uh, completed there. You're so, welcome anytime. Oh well, thank you, thank you. I look forward to it very much. So, Judy Ann Point, thanks so much for joining me today, and good luck with everything that's happening. Thank you, Jeremy. It was my pleasure.
Thanks again to today's guests, Kate Devlin of England's National Trust and the Souter Lighthouse, and Judy Ann Point of the Friends of Palmham Rocks Lighthouse in Rhode Island. There's more information about Souter on the National Trust website at nationaltrust.org.uk and more on Palmham at palmhamrockslighthouse.org. In the next episode of Lighthearted, we'll be talking with Cindy LaRouche, manager of the Pointe au Père uh, National Historic Site in Quebec, Canada. The historic site is home to the Pointe au Père Lighthouse. And uh, before we wrap things up, I just want to mention one other, one other thing. The uh, Titanic Memorial Lighthouse, uh, there's an effort to restore it. It's got a fascinating history. It was the subject of one of the recent episodes of this podcast. And people can check that out online at titaniclighthouse.org. Give some of the history and talks about the restoration project. And I just, I just think it's a really neat project. And I just want to give that a plug before we wrap up here today. The story of the Titanic is in and of itself a heart-wrenching, dramatic tale, but the building of the Titanic is equally as interesting and so prideful for those that built the ship. It's a national sense of national pride in Ireland, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, England has sailed out of England. Of course, it was uh, built in Ireland, and there is international support for this uh, restoration project for the Memorial Lighthouse. There's uh, some museums in, in Ireland and the ty- various Titanic uh, organiz- related organizations uh, over there as well as in this country. Um, also a lot of descendants of uh, people who survived or died on the Titanic, a lot of them are supporting this as well. When I uh, visited the Titanic Museum in Belfast, it told the story from a different perspective. It told the story from the people who built it and the pride that the entire country had for creating such an amazing thing. And you could just picture how devastated those people were. I mean, forget about the the, uh, the loss of life and the terrible tragedy, but the people who gave their heart and soul to building that ship. And when it went down on its maiden voyage, you could only guess how they felt. It was just a, such a tragedy. And this memorial is also a memorial to the people who built it and also to all those uh, immigrants who are looking for a better life who uh, trying to get to this country on the Titanic. Thanks to everyone out there who works to preserve lighthouses and any kind of maritime history. What you do is very important and we're all on the same team. That's right. And thank you very much for joining me again as co-host today, Jeff. No problem, Jeremy. It was a pleasure to be here. And uh, as always, thank you for your uh, creative genius for putting this all together. (laughs) Wow, genius. All right, on that note, uh, as always, thanks for listening and... I'll say it, keep a good light. Let it shine.